Today's an exciting day for us because we are moving into uh, the story of the church. You probably saw that graphic uh, showing up up on the screen. And if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 16. So you can go ahead and head in that direction or you can open up your Bible app on your phone and uh, go over to the live section and find our notes there as well. Um, But we have a very exciting uh, topic to be looking at today in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so we're excited about what the Lord is going to do through that. But I did want to just kind of open up this way. So a lot of you guys know that I, uh, as a hobby, uh, kind of like to build things and do carpentry. And so the first thing that I ever built was my dining room table. Uh, And so I built it several years ago and was really excited about it when I got it finished. And it was kind of like, this is the first time I've ever done anything of this kind of substance. And so I built it. But what happened is, is that as time went on and, and the years went by, I began to notice that there were some real flaws in the design of this table. And one of those is that because I didn't know what I was doing at all when I built it, uh, there were these like cracks between the boards on the top of the table. And so every time that we would eat and crumbs would fall off of the plate, they end up in the cracks and they get stuck there. And they're not just there for one week, but they end up being there for years, and, uh, which is not a great thing. And so when people come over and you're like, yeah, I built that table, it's like, well, there's crumbs everywhere. So uh, not a great thing. And then the second thing was is that I used um, polycrylic instead of polyurethane, and it's like a water-based finish. And so like the sun was beating in on this table in one corner of it, and all of a sudden like everything looks like stained wood, and then there's like this one white section of it where it got really cloudy and just messy looking. And so I'm like... Okay, so I continue to build things over the years and notice that this table is not where I want it to be. And so Emily and I were having conversations about it, and I'm like, I should probably just build a new dining room table. I've learned a lot. This is going to be a good thing. And Emily was like, well, can you build the same table and just fix the problems? Um, Because she really liked how it fit in the space and everything. So eventually, I decided that basically I'm just going to take the table that we have, take it apart completely, fix the problems, and put it back together. And so this is what I did, and I finished it not too long ago, but I went through this project. I took the whole thing apart, especially the top, and I sanded down all the finish to get back to the wood, and I planed the edges of it so that they could, uh, there would be no cracks anymore and use pocket screws, and this is all really like technical terminology. But just trust me, like it worked out to where there were no cracks and everything looked good. It was a really smooth finish on the top, and I was really excited about it. So I got to the point when I finished building it and I finished sanding it and it was ready to be stained and ready to put the finish on. But the problem was, is that I was home by myself one day and the table is laying on my garage floor face down. And in order to start the work of finishing it, I needed to be able to have it up on sawhorses. And so being a typical man, I'm like, I can do this by myself. Like I can totally handle this. And so I set out to do that, and so I got one sawhorse, and I set it up, and I picked up the edge of my table, and I put it on it, and then I walked around to the other side, and I had this sawhorse right here ready to go, and I picked up the other edge of my table, and as soon as I did that, it slipped off of that sawhorse, and the sawhorse fell down and broke and crashed, and so did my table on my cement floor, and I'm scared to death because this thing that I've spent hours working on. I go over and I pick it up, and thankfully the table is okay, but the sawhorse took the hit. Like it was completely busted and broken from this. And sometimes in our life, we find ourselves in situations where we're like, I've got this, I can do this, and we don't realize our need for help. 
And if only I had gone to my neighbor and said, hey, can you come over for a few minutes and help me do something? But because I put all this together and was making all this happen with this table, I started to think I can do this by myself and I can handle it. But the truth was I needed help. And we get to points like this in our lives where we desperately need help, but some of us are so stuck on wanting to solve our problems and solve the situations of life by ourselves uh, that we don't go asking for it. And in John chapter 16, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's letting them know that he's about to be gone, but that a helper is coming for them. And at the time, his disciples may not realize their need for help, but Jesus is casting this vision to his disciples and saying, trust me, you need the Holy Spirit, and here's what he's going to do for you. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's look just kind of as an introduction in uh, verse 4 of John chapter 16. And Jesus says this, he says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fact that he's going to be leaving them. And Jesus knows, because he knows us so well, that this is not a good place for his disciples to be. They don't need to be left by themselves. Because when we are left by ourselves, and we try and handle things by ourselves, things tend to fall apart and things tend to go wrong. And so Jesus is telling them, I'm sending you a helper. You are going to have help. And his disciples are really distraught. And so what it says about them is that none of them are asking him, well, Jesus, where are you going? But, but that they, they have this sorrow in their hearts. And what's happening is what typically happens to us sometimes when we receive news like this, We're so focused on ourselves and so focused on how this affects us that we don't stop to think what's actually going on. And so Jesus is like, none of you are asking me where I'm even going, but sorrow has filled your hearts. And so they're focused on themselves and they can't see past themselves to even ask Jesus where he's going. But Jesus still has compassion on them because he knows that we're coming to a new age of the church. And in this new age of the church, believers are going to be spread out all over the world. These disciples that he's invested in and that he spent time with, he's going to be sending out to places all over the world so that they can preach the gospel and the good news of who he is. And in that way, Jesus in his current form in the incarnation being one man can't be with all of them as they're spread out. And because that's the case, Jesus knows that it is to their advantage that he leaves so that another could come. So that the Spirit of God would come who could be with every believer everywhere at all times throughout history. Now remember, we've talked about this a lot in talking about this whole story series. That this is something that God wrote. That God planned this from the beginning. And that God planned for Christ to come and die for our sins. And that God literally killed Jesus so that we could experience the hope and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus rising from the dead as our sins are put to death. And it is also a part of God's plan that the Spirit comes, that when Jesus goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, that the Holy Spirit can come and inhabit the people of God. Now, I know for us that there are a lot of us, if you're like me, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and uh, typically Southern Baptist churches are very afraid of the Holy Spirit. We don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. We tend to ignore, like, 
people because there's been so much confusion in church history about the Holy Spirit. Denominations are split over the Holy Spirit. People don't understand the Holy Spirit. They don't know what they believe about the Holy Spirit. And so what we've tended to do instead of finding these answers is that we've tended just to kind of ignore the Spirit and focus on Jesus. But Jesus is sitting here and he's telling his disciples, listen, this is a time for you to focus on the Spirit. The Helper is coming, and you need to know and understand why he's coming. And so what Jesus is doing through this conversation with his disciples is he's explaining to them, this is why it is to your advantage that the Spirit of God comes, and here's what he's going to do for you that I can't do sitting here with you right now. So as we dig into this passage, know this, it's not a comprehensive look at the Holy Spirit. We could be here for days if we wanted to really dig into everything about the Spirit of God. But I will point you to, um, back in 2014, we did a series called Acts of the Spirit. And uh, basically, we took the beginning of the book of Acts and looked at how the Holy Spirit of God was working in the early church. And so if you want more information about the Spirit, uh, all those sermons are available on our website, and you can go and listen to those to find out more information about the Spirit of God. But for today, we want to focus in on what Jesus is telling his disciples about why it's so important that they have the Holy Spirit. And so the first thing that we see about the Spirit is that the Spirit convicts us. Let's look at verse 8. Jesus says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus says to his disciples, the Spirit of God is coming to convict us of sin. Now we think about the word convict, a lot of us think correctly in like current our, our current world today and what it means when someone is convicted. It's a legal term that means that someone is found guilty of doing something. It's not just that we are accused of doing something, but that we literally have guilt and are guilty for doing something. Imagine, and I, I don't think a lot of us have been in this situation, but imagine that you're sitting in a courtroom and that you've just been found guilty uh, for committing a certain act. What you would be afraid of in that moment is the judgment that's to come. What's going to happen? What's, where am I going to end up in the future? And this is exactly what the Spirit is doing in our lives. That when we come and stand before God, we have sin in our life. And that we need to feel the weight of that sin. And we need to feel the guilt of that sin. And it's not until we feel the guilt and the weight of that sin that we can realize that we have a need for someone to save us from it. And this is what the Spirit does in our life. In verse 9, Jesus says the Spirit convicts us of sin, and he ties together this idea of sin with the idea of unbelief, which I think is a really interesting thing that Jesus says, tying in this idea of sin and unbelief. And I think the first way this happens is that uh, the first belief that we really have to have to come to Jesus is the belief that we are a sinner. And so if we, can't, if we don't believe that we are a sinner, then obviously sin is going to be a huge part of something that's separating us from God right there. And so when we begin to believe and understand that we are a sinner and we feel the weight of our sin, we get to the point where we realize we need a Savior. And so the work of the Spirit in that moment in convicting us of sin and letting us feel the weight of that, which nobody wants to do and which feels horrible and we want to stay away from, is still a grace of God to us. Because it allows us to see our need for Jesus and to cry out to him for help and for salvation. Sin and unbelief also go together, I think, because the more unbelief that we have in our hearts, 
the more sin that we're going to have as well. And I don't, I don't know for you, maybe like what the sins that you struggle with are. But I, I try and think about different sins. And maybe you have something that's plaguing you that you can't seem to get rid of. And on and on and on. It's just something that you deal with every day and you wish you could set it aside. And I would say to you that I think in a lot of those cases that it's not actually that sin that's the problem, but it's our unbelief that's the issue. It's the fact that we don't believe enough in the grace of God to rescue us from that sin that's keeping us from being able to give that over to the Lord and let the Spirit do His work in our life. You think about kind of like the sin of of wanting to be accepted and doing anything that you can do to have people accept you for who you are. What that is, is it's saying that God accepting me based on the work of Jesus isn't enough. They're like, I need more acceptance, and I need acceptance from my friends and from my neighbors and, and people that I go to school with or whatever it may be. But it's not believing that God's acceptance of us through Jesus is enough. And so a sin like that is actually a sin of unbelief when Jesus has already, as a believer, made us acceptable in the eyes of the Father. Jesus also says in verse 10 that the Spirit comes to convict us concerning righteousness. And what righteousness is, is it's a standard that's set up for us in saying that this is the way that we should be living and this is what we should be striving for is this kind of living and this kind of sin. It's this idea of right living. And without a standard of what righteousness is, then we we don't really know what is sin and what is not sin. But when that standard is set, then we are able to understand the way that we should live and the things that we should not do. I like to think about it a little bit When you think about you're driving down the interstate and there's a bunch of cars around you and what a lot of us tend to do in a situation like that is if the pack of cars is like speeding, we'll just kind of jump in there because as long as I'm not going faster than the pack, then I'm probably not going to get pulled over. How many of you have been there? We all have. You don't have to raise your hands. So this is what we do. Um, But the interesting thing about it is, is there is a set standard for us. And it's not the pack. It's not the world around us. What it is is the law. And the law says that if you go this far above this set speed limit, then you are doing something illegal and that you can be pulled over. But a lot of us have created a new standard. And I think we do this in life as well. Instead of looking to the standard that's set to us by the Spirit in Jesus, we look to our neighbor. We look to our friend. And we look to that person who lives down the street that nobody likes and says, you know, well, as long as I'm doing better than them, I'm good. But they are not the standard that's been set for us. Jesus is the standard that has been set for us. And when we look at ourselves in comparison to Jesus, we don't look good enough and we see the need that we have. And there's this great gap that separates us from God and Christ is the only one that can carry us across. And so the Spirit convicts us concerning righteousness. Verse 11, the Spirit convicts us concerning judgment. Judgment is the result of that standard and of us not being able to stand up to it. It's us feeling the weight of the punishment that is to come, and the Spirit does this. But thankfully, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't let us bear that for long. As long as we're willing to turn to him, he takes the weight of our sin on himself, and he died on a cross, putting it to death, and we have hope. It is why the gospel is good news. If you look in 2 Samuel, uh, there's a story about a guy named David, and David is a king. We talked about this earlier in this series. Uh, one night, David is, is out, and he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And David says, I have to have her. And so he brings Bathsheba 
uh, to himself and, and takes her and they do things that they shouldn't do. And, uh, but the interesting thing about the story is that Bathsheba has a husband named Uriah. And when David finds out about Uriah, David wants to cover up his sin. And so what he does is he sends Uriah out to the front lines of the battle and Uriah dies. And then David takes Bathsheba and makes Bathsheba his wife. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Nathan, who is a prophet of God, comes to David and he tells David a story. And the story that he tells David is about how there was a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had everything that you could possibly ever want. He had all the riches in the world. He had relationships. He had flocks. He had everything that you could possibly want. But this poor man had very little. And the one thing that he had that was of value was this lamb, this little lamb. And scripture even goes so far as to say that this lamb was like a daughter to him. It was the thing that he had in his life that was the most valuable. And so one day the rich man has a guest who comes in town to visit. And the rich man is like, well, I need to put out a good spread of food. So instead of going to the many flocks that he has and taking a lamb from there, he goes to this poor man and takes the only lamb that he has and kills it, cooks it, and serves it for his guest. Now, David is enraged on hearing this story. And he looks to Nathan and is like, tell me who this is. This man needs to be put to death. And Nathan looks at David straight in the face and he said, David, you are that man. And at that moment, David felt the weight of his sin. He felt the conviction of what he had done. And if you look in the book of Psalms, many Psalms that David wrote were Psalms of lament about his sin and his need for a savior and asking to be saved. The question for us today is, have we ever been broken over our sin? Have we allowed the spirit of God to convict us so much that it has just broken us? So when we're left to ourselves, we compare ourselves to our neighbor and we look pretty good. But when we have the spirit of God, we look at ourselves compared to Jesus and we see the need that is in our life. I don't have to tell you this, but you guys know we live in a comparison culture. We're always comparing ourselves and what we have to what other people have. All that you have to do is look on social media. We're trying to put our best life out on display for everybody to see, and it's become so normal to us that we don't even realize that we're setting up the wrong standard for life and the wrong standard for what we need to be doing. I'm guilty of this. I think that we all do it. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, am I doing this because I'm actually really grateful for the blessings that God has given me? Or am I doing it so that other people can look in me and see and wish that they could have what it is that I have? We can always look better than someone else, but keeping up with the Joneses is a poor standard for righteousness. Because when we compare ourselves to Jesus, our best work is like filthy rags. So have you been broken? Have you been broken over your sin? And if you have, then you've done one of two things. You've accepted the grace that God has to offer you through Jesus, or you're still sitting there upset and broken and wallowing in the fact that you can't escape from it. Or maybe you've never been broken over your sin, and you're looking at this and saying, I don't even know what that looks like. I'd ask you this morning, pray. Pray that the Spirit would convict you. Pray that the Spirit would break you over the sin that is in your life. In a little while, we'll have an opportunity for you to respond. Christians, though, this isn't just something that happens to us before we're saved, but the Spirit is constantly working to convict us of the sin in our lives, making us more like Jesus, getting rid of the old stuff, getting rid of the sin, getting rid of the old flesh, and pushing us to be more like Christ in all the things that we do. 
And we need to allow the Spirit to do that work in our hearts. I'll say this too to those of you who are parents. And this might be controversial. I don't know. Talk to your kids about the fact that they're sinners. If you don't have a conversation with your children about the fact that they are sinners, then they may never be able to understand their need for God. But if you're able to be honest with them and let them know that they make mistakes and that those mistakes hurt God, then they are going to begin to see the need for God in their hearts. And and I think it's important to tell your kids that they're great and that obviously that you love them and would do anything for them. But if we take that so far to never talk to our kids about how they are sinners, then they may never know of their need for a great Savior. And I know that we want to protect our kids' self-esteem and we want them to be valuable, but that self-esteem does little good when they're standing before God. What matters in that moment is that they have the esteem of God because of what Christ has done for them. And to do that, guys, they need to know that they are a sinner. And so the Spirit works to convict us. Number two, the Spirit guides us. Let's look at verse 12. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak, not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you, the things that are to come. So Jesus is saying, listen, there's more than I want to say, but I know that you're not ready. And so we're going to set up this new plan where the Spirit is going to reveal this stuff to you. And in verse 13, I love that the Spirit gains this title of the Spirit of truth. And that is because the Holy Spirit is all about truth. So much to the fact that he gains the very title of being the Spirit of truth. And look, look at the phrasing after that, that the spirit of truth will guide you into all of the truth. I think those words are really important. It could have just been that the spirit guides us in truth, meaning that as the spirit is guiding our lives, we're walking along the way, and a part of what happens is that we're receiving truth. But that's not what the text says. The text says that the spirit is guiding us into truth. Meaning that there is a source of truth. There is something that we are being driven towards, and that thing is truth. And not just that, but we are being driven and guided into all of the truth. Meaning that whatever that source is, it contains all of the truth of the world. There is no truth that is missing. It's not just part of it, but it is all there. And we know from Jesus in John 14, 6, that he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And Jesus is that source of truth that the Spirit of God is guiding us into. And Jesus also says that the Spirit will guide us in things that are to come. And I know for us today that this is a, this is a big one. This is one that we're always dealing with. And we're asking for guidance from the Spirit. Usually it's in what's to come and not what's happening right now. And we're saying, listen, God, I want to know where I'm going to be. I want to know where you want me to go, what you want me to do next. What's next for my life? What's, what, where am I going to be? What kind of job am I going to have? Who am I going to marry? All these different questions. And we get obsessed with what's next and looking ahead so much sometimes to the point that we forget about what's right here and where the Spirit is guiding us right now into all of the truth. The Spirit of God is not a crystal ball for us to constantly seek. Yes, he will give us direction. Yes, he will give us guidance. And we should be obedient to follow when he does. But we know that the Spirit is always guiding us into all truth. When I was in college, there was a guy who came and spoke in a chapel there. And sadly, I don't remember any other sermon or speaker that ever happened in chapel in college, but I remember this one guy. And the reason I do is because he stood up 
talking about something similar and talking about how his whole life he's always looking for what's next and looking for what's ahead. Always begging God and spending sleepless nights worrying about what's coming and what direction he needed to be going in his life and asking, God, what is your will for me? Where do I need to go? And it wasn't until years later when he was looking back on his life that God allowed him to see that at every moment that he was exactly where he needed to be and that the Spirit of God had been guiding him along the way, but that he had missed every single one of those opportunities because his eyes were focused on what was next and not what was now. The Spirit of God is guiding us into all truth for our life now and for how we live as well. And if we're always looking at the next thing, we're going to miss what he's doing in our lives now. The source of our truth is important too because a lot of us, left to ourselves, are looking to us for wisdom, we're looking to the world for wisdom, and we're missing out on the fact that with the Spirit, we will be guided into all of the truth through Jesus Christ. And honestly, you can't look for a better source of truth than the Word of God. And the Word of God is the best collection of truth. Every bit of it is true that points us to Jesus that we possibly have. And I will say to you this morning that if you want the Spirit to guide you into all truth, this is where you need to start. I've got some tips for that, just to allow the Spirit of God to direct us. And one is to read consistently. Spend time in God's Word consistently, daily, opening up the Word of God, asking how we need to be directed and what we need to apply to our lives and what we need to do. Come up with a plan for that. Read through a book. This year we had uh, the whole story series for you guys to walk through with a daily passage that you can soap through, kind of covering all of Scripture. And I hope that you took advantage of that. But if you didn't, Maybe that's something that you can take and start and walk through next year and saying, I want to understand what's happening in Scripture and I want to have a plan to walk through and I want to let the Spirit speak to me uh, in a consistent manner. Number two, study together. Basically what I mean here is huddle. Yesterday I was uh, at our men's huddle breakfast and sat across the table from two great guys and it was incredible not just to sit with the Word of God and hear what the Spirit was was saying to me and hear how the Spirit was guiding me into all truth through His Word, but it was awesome to be able to hear from those two guys as well and what the Spirit was directing them towards and how they needed to take God's Word and apply it to their life. And I think it's great value for us to hear not just what God's doing in our lives through the Spirit, but what He's doing through the lives of men around us who can encourage us as well. And so we want to take advantage of things like that. Uh, Number three, meditate. And I know that's a weird word for a lot of us, and we kind of have this mystical view of meditation and what it is. But honestly, it's something that we see throughout Scripture. If you look in Joshua 1.8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm 1, 1 and 2 said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How often do we meditate on the word of God? It's clear in Scripture that it should be a part of our lives, that we should, in different settings, whether we're in the car or wherever we are, going to sleep at night, allowing ourselves to focus and meditate on God's Word. I think one of the best ways to do this is Scripture memory, because it helps us, like, really have to do this. And uh, Chris Mims and I have been spending time walking through Colossians chapter 3 and and memorizing it one verse a week, and, and we come and sit down with each other 
And we start from the beginning and recite it and then add on that new verse for that week. And honestly, it's been a good challenge for me in this, in this area of meditation because I'm having to think on these verses so often to make sure that they're in my head that it's incredible to see what God is doing in my heart as I meditate on these things. And it's so neat to think that so many times at night, like I'm laying in bed and the last thing on my mind is something from Colossians 3 so that when I wake up in the morning, the first thing that I'm thinking about is what God is doing and what the Spirit is teaching me through that passage of Scripture. And I think meditation is such an important thing for us to get onto. Number four, lastly, is prayer. And I don't mean just sitting with God and talking to Him and telling Him everything about your life and exactly what you want, but listening. Having communication with the Lord that's two-way. Finding a place in your life to carve out time where you can just hear from God. And I know that our lives are busy and that it's difficult for us to do, but we all need to hear from the Lord. And I want to encourage you to find that time to listen. So the Spirit convicts us, the Spirit guides us. Lastly, in verse 14, the Spirit points us to Jesus. Jesus says, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. He takes the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus and is constantly declaring them into our lives. And this is great for uh, so many reasons, but one that I love is it's not just the work of the Spirit to convict us of our sin, but it's also the work of uh, of the Spirit to allow us to know that there is grace through Jesus to forgive us of that sin. And that is a hope that, yes, we understand the fact that we are sinners, but at the same time, we can rest in the fact that we have a Savior who loves us so much that he gave himself for us. But the Spirit works to point our lives in the direction of Jesus, reminding us how important it is that our focus is not on us, but it's on him. Friday, as I was kind of finishing up some work for this, I took a picture of myself This is the second time I've ever done this in my life. You guys know this as the selfie. Uh, So this is my second selfie ever, and I'm sure you can give me some tips to make it better, but this is what I got. Um, Guys, we live in a selfie culture, and when it comes to our view of the world and our view of life, it is so hard for us to see anything about the world or understand anything about the world apart from seeing us in the middle of it. And this is evidence of this. The fact that we are always focused on having us in the center of everything and seeing that we are focused in the center of every single thing that happens in life. We do this with our future as well. You you can take that off. (laughs) We do this with our future as well. And we think about what's coming next. It's always us who's in the middle. And if you're my age and in your 30s, and maybe it's like, here's all the things that I want to accomplish in my life. Or if you're older, maybe you're looking forward to retirement. Maybe you're younger and you're looking forward to marriage or kids or whatever it may be. Maybe you have a bucket list. Uh, I have a bucket list for my life. I want to write a book and have it published. I want to have good, successful kids. I want to grow old with Emily. Like all these things that I want to accomplish. But the thing about all of that stuff is that we are at the center of it all. All of our hopes and dreams are built with us in the middle. But what if instead our hopes and dreams were built centered around Christ? That when we looked at the world, it wasn't about where do I fit into the middle of this, but where is Christ in all of this? And how do I engage where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing? The Spirit helps us do that. When we're left to ourselves, our lives are pointed at us, but with the Spirit, 
we are able to look towards Jesus. How does the Spirit point us to Jesus? Just a few ways that we kind of see in Scripture. Number one, the Spirit lets us remember Jesus. Our lives are busy. I don't have to tell you that. You know that well enough. And sometimes it's, we don't even know what happens between getting our head off the pillow in the morning and our heads hitting the pillow again in the evening because so much is going on. And it's so easy for us to forget about Jesus throughout the day and forget about the hope of the gospel and forget to look and see what Christ is doing because we're so busy. But John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit of God is working to help us remember Jesus in the midst of our crazy lives. Number two, the Spirit shows us Jesus at work. There's a great story in, in Acts chapter 8 about a guy named Philip. And in Acts 8, 29, it says, The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip gets over, but the Spirit told him to go walk over to a chariot. He gets up, he walks over to this chariot, and he hears this guy in this chariot who is reading Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And so Philip takes his cue, and he shares the gospel with this guy. This guy comes to know Jesus. He takes him, and he baptizes him. Um, but all of that would have never happened outside of the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit nudging Philip to get up and go do something specific. The Spirit lets us see Jesus at work. We just have to have the availability to know when he's directing us and to stand up and go and jump in on what he's doing. Number three, the Spirit reminds us whose we are. Romans eight sixteen says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And what a great reminder for our lives. And how often do we need to be reminded that this world is not our home and that we have a Father who loves us more than we could possibly ever imagine. So much that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us. I need to be reminded that I am his child daily. We need to be reminded of that. Number four, the Spirit magnifies Jesus in Scripture. We've already seen this that the Spirit of God is working to allow Christ to come to life through the words of Scripture. I've been contemplating all this this past week in my life because, like I said, I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church and we didn't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. So when I'm praying to the Lord and I'm saying, God, what am, what am, I, what am I missing? What am I not taking advantage of? I just over and over again have to think that, yeah, I've, I've, I've wanted to know Jesus and I've asked uh, just, you know, to talk to Jesus. And I'm like, man, if I could just sit and have a conversation with him or if I could just see Jesus risen, if Jesus could just be here, everything would be different. But then I'm reminded about the fact that Jesus is sitting here with his disciples and he's saying, it's to your advantage that I go away, that the Spirit comes. And it is a source of power, of conviction, of guidance, of strength that we tend to so often ignore. When God is wanting to move and work in our hearts, the Spirit is more than enough, and He wants to work in us. But we're so focused on ourselves that it's hard for us to put ourselves aside and let the Spirit do the work that He wants to do. Guys, we live in a culture where I really believe self-sufficiency is an idol. 
just like with me and my table, wanting to do it by myself so that I could get the glory for it. Like we want to handle things by ourselves on our power so people can look at us and think that we're great. But that's a false idol. It's not the gospel. It's not what we were created for at all. We were created to need a savior. And we were created to need the work of the spirit in our lives. And if we think we can stand up and do it on our own, we're gonna break every single time under the pressure of that. Church, we need to be desperate for the Spirit of God. We need to be willing to set ourselves aside and realize that we need great help. When I was in high school, went on my first mission trip to Honduras and um, got to do some some fun stuff. We did a a medical stuff and dental stuff, and I was working with a dentist, and towards the end of the trip, he, like, gave me the pliers and let me pull teeth out of people's mouths which I don't know why he let me do that, but he did. Crazy. But the thing I remember about that trip more than anything else is that every night there was a worship service. And hours before that service started, people in these villages would start lining up outside of the doors, wanting to hear the gospel. We also gave them a copy of God's word. And man, when that thing came and fell in their hands, they were so excited about the opportunity to be able to read for themselves about the hope of Jesus. And I sat in those worship services with people that I didn't know in a language that I didn't understand really well, but I can promise you that I felt the Spirit of God more on that trip than I ever have in my life because I was with the people who were desperate. And we live in a culture that isn't desperate. We've built our lives in a way to where we don't need anything and we don't need help in any way. But guys, we have got to get to a point where we admit and become desperate for the help of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus knew his disciples wouldn't make it without him. And so why are we so bold to think that we could? A.W. Tozer said this. He said, we may as well face it The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, it is time that we set that cheap, fake power that we think we have in ourselves and in the world aside and admit to our Savior how much we need him. It's time that we became desperate. Bottom line, the Spirit of God can do far more in your life than you can do in your flesh. And so if you are living your life wondering why you don't see incredible things happening in your life and around you and you don't see God at work in the life of your family and in what's happening, You need to, this morning, admit your need for the Spirit. Become desperate for His work in your life and open yourself up to Him, working and revealing to you all the truth of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and the Spirit is convicting you. Maybe you have started to to feel that brokenness over your own sin. I want to tell you that God desires to show you grace. And that just as the Spirit may be convicting you of the sin in your life this morning, He's also telling you of the hope of a Savior. 
In just a few minutes, our band's going to go ahead and come on up, and I'll, I'll be standing over here, and I would love the opportunity to get to tell you more about that hope and more about that Savior who gave himself for you, who took your sins upon himself. He took the judgment that you owed and the guilt that you had on himself and put it to death on a cross and is offering you new life and new hope that you can take and experience, and it's free. And church, let's be desperate. Let's be desperate for the Spirit. If we believe that God is going to do incredible things in our community and that God is going to work and that God is going to show his power and his might, it begins with us and it begins with me individually saying, I can't do it on my own. I need you more than anything. It doesn't start with all of us, but it starts with me and it starts with you. And so church, let's be a people who are desperate to see the Spirit of God working in our hearts. Let's pray.